Let me go ahead and ask you the question that I ask everybody. Do you consider yourself a space lawyer? I am proud to be your first, not even close to a space lawyer guest. I am actually the daughter of two lawyers, and I had never heard of space <laughs> law until, um, until I don't know, my, my mid-20s, I think. So it's not an area that people know about. Welcome to the Astro Esquire podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Johnson, and in each episode, I interview professionals in space law and policy to try and find out exactly what that means. First, a disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any of my past, present, or future employers or clients. Today, I am joined by Laura Forsick. Hi, I'm Laura Forsick, and I am a consultant and analyst in space policy and space industry. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today for this interview. Let me go ahead and ask you the question that I ask everybody. Do you consider yourself a space lawyer? I am proud to be your first, not even close to a space lawyer guest. <laughs> yes, I, I have legal, legally trained people who do not currently carry a license who sort of step back from that, but you, you don't even approach the law part of it. Your background is not in legal education. Not at all. Uh, so where do you come, to, come from uh, to the space sector? My background is in science, so astronomy, astrophysics, and planetary science. And from there, I moved into industry, where now I analyze the space industry as a whole. I still do space science, but I also take a look at the entirety of the space industry, and that ties into space policy, which touches on space law, but not my main focus. So as a scientist who sort of has taken it upon themselves to also handle the business side of science in space, what does space law and policy mean to you? For me, that is the interactions that we have that help progress the sector forward. So the ways that we partner both internationally as well as on a small scales, we need the, the space policy and the space law in order to formulate the ways that we cooperate and interact with one another. And that's on a, a large scale with countries and on a small scale with individuals or small businesses and everything in between. Yeah, and obviously... I myself have a very positive view of how space law and policy shapes and encourages cooperation. Um, not everybody shares the same uh, heartfelt feelings towards lawyers, um, but a, a number of my guests have talked about encouraging that sort of relation uh, among nations and, and also among the individual participants. But one of the things that has shaped space law before now and the realities of space policy and politics is that it has really out interaction between nations. So in your experience, have you seen a slow transition from everything being about a nation to nation relationship to individuals like individual companies getting to take their own initiative to form these relationships? Yeah, I, w I would definitely say so. We've seen, for example, um, there's not much interaction between the U.S. Uh, Civil Space Agency, NASA, and the Chinese Space Agency, 
by law. Um, but you're seeing, for example, companies, individual companies interacting with Chinese universities and the sort of individual scale that is under the radar and not forbidden by the national law. And so we are definitely seeing companies and individuals at, at various universities or, or other um, smaller companies interacting where countries and nations can't. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a very specific example of current U.S.-based policy uh, written into law saying that NASA cannot work with Chinese space agency. But um, if we echo it back to uh, U.S.-Russia relations, uh, the space sector then was used as a bridge between countries. Um, And now it's sort of like it's not a nation to nation bridge, but an individual to individual bridge people are sort of allowed to pursue to encourage cooperation and interaction between nations. Right. It's definitely both. And um, maybe it's just an increased awareness of the profitability of space that makes companies seem to be more interactive and more plentiful right now that they have the opportunity to interact with other countries, um, both the the governments of other countries and companies and in universities in other countries. Um, I think that probably plays a large role, whereas in the formation of the space age, it was nations. It was the United States and the Soviet Union and a few others. But now it's really proliferated so that it is so much more. So let's take a step back. We, we've already taken a very big picture view um, of the current state of uh, space globalization. But bringing it to a smaller scale, how did you yourself get interested in the space sector? I've been wanting to be an astronaut since third grade. So (laughs) I'm one of those and I still want to be an astronaut. Um, So as a kid, I fell in love with space, especially the moon. And I went to space camps four times as a kid and then twice as an adult. And I I absolutely loved everything about space. In high school, I started studying uh, chemistry and physics and fell in love with physics especially and decided to major in astrophysics for my undergrad. And so um, my background is of astrophysics and planetary science was my doctoral work and um, just absolutely loved it. But then as I continued on in my career, I realized that the space industry was something that I could be part of. I didn't really have the awareness of it prior to um, really entering later stages of grad school. And once I realized that was a possibility, I jumped right in because I'm really fascinated by a lot of the newer emerging companies, both human exploration. I think that's my main passion since uh, I still want to be an astronaut, but, but also some of the other things that we take for granted, the the satellites and especially small sats and all the things that we can do to make space accessible for for human commerce and for human you know transportation and and for science in the future. So you started as a scientist, um, and you saw that from that point of view, um, the sort of developments and activities going on in the space sector. And so, would you say that now you've sort of shifted from the science supplier uh, for space activities to more of a development position? 
I'd say I'm a facilitator. So um, I don't do a whole lot of hands-on in the lab work anymore. I still have a lot of lab equipment that I work with from time to time, but I'm much more able to help other people. So working on projects, helping with proposals, facilitating experiments, that's been a lot of the work that I've been doing over the past few years. And, and it's ranging from all kinds of science, from you know astronomy to you know, the applications of earth observation that we're seeing. And I, I really enjoy the fact that there's such a diversity of things to be involved with. So would you say uh, with that diversity that's currently available that the opportunities in the space sector are, are very strong right now for people that want to get involved? Yeah, absolutely. I, I speak to a lot of students at schools. And one of the main things I tell them is that it's no longer just STEM careers. It never was just STEM careers, but I feel like that was the area that a lot of people, especially um, teachers and educators, just push their students towards where it doesn't have to be. I mean, I'm a scientist. I love science, but it's not for everybody. If you're not in a science, technology, engineering, mathematics field, it's okay. You can still work in space. We're talking about space law right now. And space law is not an area that most people know about. I am actually the daughter of two lawyers, and I had never heard of space <laughs> law until, um, until, I don't know, my, my mid-20s, I think. So it's not an area that people know about. And you combine it with all the other things, communication and art and, uh, you know, anything, culinary arts. I mean, really anything can be involved in space. And that's really like what I like to tell students and the people I interact with is that space is everywhere and we take it for granted right now. Wow. So you're the daughter of two lawyers, and you alluded to it, the first time you heard about space law was in your uh, mid-20s. How, how did you first learn about space law? Do you remember what your first impression of it was? Yeah, it started with policy. So I didn't realize that as a scientist, I could be involved in space policy. I thought that was for people who had poli-sci degrees. And in high school, I did get involved in something called Presidential Classroom, which is a, a small week-long program for high school students in Washington, D.C. So I always had that interest in policy, but I chose science and I thought that was my path. And I didn't realize that the two could interact. So when I was in early grad school, I participated in a program called NASA Academy. I was an intern during my undergrad, and then I helped run it during grad school at Marshall Space Flight Center. And there's where I met some people who were involved not only in science, but science policy. And I had the benefit of being sent to Washington, D.C. Um, to visit Congress people. Um, when was that? Early in my doctoral career. And that's when I realized I could really get involved in policy. And from there, it was diving into the specifics of what is the policy and the international treaties that we have and um, how that is all formed and interpreted and constantly fascinated by the various ways that people interpret these policies. It seems like there's a different interpretation for each space lawyer that you talk to. Um, and I, I try to keep up with all of them. So I understand who is speaking about what and how they're interpreting it and what that means in terms of the applications for, let's say, asteroid mining or, you know, um, the ways that we send and receive data and, and what data to collect and uh, all these different applications that 
um, most people aren't even aware of. But I, I realized that even if I'm not directly involved in space law or space policy, I can still be somewhat involved. So I've done congressional visits. I was on um, congressional advisory boards. I just a couple of weeks ago organized on a state level um, a group for Georgia Aerospace Day because I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. And so there's various ways that anybody can get involved in policy, even if you don't have that policy or law background. Yeah, and that's and that's really good to hear. I mean, even within the legal profession itself, somebody tweeted about it recently. There's no direct career path involved in being a space lawyer, and in the space sector overall, I think there's a lot of opportunity for people to constantly pursue some new aspect of it that they find uh, interesting and they that they feel that they can have an effect on as well. So, is there any aspect? or specific space law or policy that you feel has had the biggest effect on the ability of space activities? I think um, there probably, but the area that most interests me is actually the future applications. So the things that we are talking about now that will um, really help guide the activity in the future, especially with regards to human activity. So I'm thinking about the um, the paying passengers, the spaceflight participants or space tourists, if you will, that will um, be paying and taking their lives in their own hands and signing waivers so that they fly on these experimental aircraft, which will then turn into, um, you know, actual active operational aircraft. And um, prior to my, my current position, prior to forming my own company, I actually worked on a well, it was it was a zero G parabolic aircraft that would turn into a space plane, and um, all the different ways that the FAA and the government regulates this activity, and it's a new area. And I, it was interesting that the FAA has the two branches: it has the aviation branch and the space branch, and the two don't really interact very well, in my opinion. Whereas don't seem to know what they're talking about if you if you talk to one about the other. And so maybe it's gotten better in the past few years, I don't know, but it was interesting talking to both of the different areas and them getting giving me two different answers depending on what I asked or who I asked. And then taking that one step further and thinking, okay, we're actually sending people to various planetary bodies, to the moon, to Mars, to asteroids, to other moons, and even to space stations in, in um, low Earth orbit, lunar orbit. What are these people going to be doing? How are they going to interact? What are the laws that are going to govern them? What are we going to do about mining? Mining is huge. I worked in grad school on ISRU. That's in-situ resource utilization. I worked a lot with the regolith. So that's the dirt and dust that's on these planetary bodies. And how do we use that? And the whole idea is that we will use what's there to create this new world. And it's easy to do on Earth because we've got the the soil with the nutrients and the organics and we've got the atmosphere that we can breathe. It's very, very difficult to do this on in space or on a planetary body such as the moon or Mars, very hostile environments. So if we dig up dirt and we use this dirt and the minerals that are in this dirt, this regolith, is that freely available to use? What about bringing it back? What about mining it for water and selling it to other companies or bringing it back to earth for the, the, the types of minerals that we want to mine and all these different applications. So I'm um, sure there's been a lot to this point that has affected where we are right now, but I'm actually more interested in the future and how this all plays out, hopefully even within our lifetime. And, and speaking of, of new areas, 
from your point of view, is there uh, a common or big misconception in the general public about what is going on right now in space policy? Well, okay, the general public doesn't know space policy exists. <laughs> um, so in order for there to be a misconception, they need to know that it's actually happening. But I think that if you hold the general public and you ask them, they would probably immediately think of the military applications. And that is how it began. But it's not just all understanding ballistic missiles. And um, it, it's evolved since then. And so I don't know how much the public is aware of what the current issues are. I mentioned it to someone recently and was surprised that they knew about the FCC's um, debate about broadband and um, which which bans to auction off for what uh, industries. And that's an interesting topic that I was surprised that someone was aware of. But there are issues that touch upon other industries, and that's probably where people are most aware. So someone in the aviation industry might be aware of the airspace issue, and somebody who works in communications technology might be aware of broadband issues. So I think that's where the in is. If you can tie it to somebody's industry, um, then you can really get their interest and show them that there's something going on in space that they should be aware of. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And even from the consumer perspective, if you can get people, I think one of the easiest things to do is talk to people about GPS. Yes. And the way that GPS is now completely ingrained in every aspect of our lives and get people to realize that and like, yeah, GPS satellites exist in orbit and we have laws and treaties and political activities going on to try to preserve the safety of that orbit and of those GPS operations. I think for consumers, that's usually the first example people go to. Um, Satellite telecommunications, uh, another big example, and you were talking about broadband and uh, frequencies. And I know that there is a lot of discussion about how to get broadband internet to rural communities and satellite is one of the possible alternatives to getting to beam internet to people in the U.S. and rural communities and then worldwide efforts like O3B, the other 3 billion, getting it to other countries around the world that have very little physical infrastructure on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Bringing it to humanitarian efforts is a huge way to get people interested and you make them aware of ways that space can really benefit life on Earth. One of the the, the first full-time job I had in the space sector was um, analyzing and figuring out various ways to use space to benefit life on Earth. And there's countless applications, um, but that is one of the main ones. And it really ties to a lot of the work that both companies and countries are doing, because even within the United States, there are certain states or certain counties that are more interested in bringing those new technologies that you mentioned, both near space and space applications to bring internet to the underserved. And that benefits industries. So you're seeing, for example, Facebook and Google being involved in these kinds of things, because the more people on the planet Earth who have internet, the more that they will use these technologies, such as Facebook and Google and others, to um, increase business, increase revenue, increase advertising, all of the things that we do that we um, don't think about because we, you and I, have the internet reliably. Yeah, no, and and there are things that we, uh, some people can take for granted and then don't realize, again, just how much of that infrastructure depends on space activities as well. And then uh, along the same sort of lines, you have worked in the industry for a while from uh, a development and uh, facilitator perspective, as you said it. Are there any misconceptions 
in the industry about what is possible or what is happening in space policy? I find that a lot of people in industry know their immediate circle, but they don't know what's going on outside of their little circle. So um, somebody who's into one product or one little subfield knows that field very well, knows that product very well, knows that market very well, but they don't know the bigger picture and how that um, product or how that market is affecting the wider space community and the wider um, human, you know, human sphere. Um, and so there's where I find that sometimes it's really good to broaden your perspective. So for example, if you are working on a product, you you mentioned GPS. So let's talk about a product that uses GPS. And you can understand that GPS is crucial to your product because of accurate timing and positioning. But then take one step out and recognize, okay, there's cybersecurity concerns. We need to protect these GPS satellites. There's we need to make sure that these satellites get funded for replacement satellites because the GPS, um, you know, these satellites have been going up for a cop- for for several years now. They need to be replaced and updated. What about updating in orbits or on orbit satellites? So on orbit servicing. Um, what about um, future technologies where we can bring satellites down to a lower orbit to um, increase latency and make these satellites less expensive by making them smaller? So small sat forms and smaller smaller avionics and what about the better processing of the um, the software. So, you know, there's all these t- tangential related subjects that you can immerse yourself in and find out what the policies are. So what about, I saw um, just recently a uh, satellite on a chip. And so there was that whole debate about the um, how small can a satellite be to make it safe to be tracked. Satellite on a ship, I'm sure, is really, really, really inexpensive to build and launch because it's so lightweight and tiny. You could probably launch thousands of them really inexpensively. But can you um, track them? And that brings you to space situational awareness and the space debris issue. So uh, just by mentioning one simple um, thing would be GPS, that brought me to a whole cascade of other issues that are involved in. And so maybe take a look at what those other issues are and are they relevant to you and your business? And can you get involved? Do you find it important that the industry or the law or the policies goes in one way versus the other? Yeah. And I mean, that's a very good example of the increasing miniaturization of satellite technology. And I think one of the biggest problems is often that by shrinking down satellites, that is then compensated for by having multiples of them. So we're sort of exchanging one big satellite for many small satellites per mission or activity and having a bunch of tiny things in orbit, uh, like you said, that can be difficult to track is potentially scarier than having one big thing in orbit. And I think things like the movie Gravity have sort of popularized and dramatized the issue of orbital debris. Not that it is an accurate representation, that movie, but I think orbital debris is another issue that is somewhat easy for people to grasp and realize is is something worth having dialogue and practices around. Yeah, I, I would say orbital debris is one of the top priorities that we should be focused on within policy um, for planetary protection, defense, sorry, planetary defense. Um, we need to make sure that there is nothing that can come down and hit infrastructure on the ground or disrupt other satellites. It's just a increasingly crowded uh, location. And it's not like the movie Gravity, not yet, or... Um, <laughs> 
you know, we're not going to have a Kessler syndrome where the satellites are knocking each other out like dominoes, not yet, at least. And that's not how it works currently. But it's one of those issues that I think is easy to grasp because it is so visual. And because we can point to movies like Gravity or, or some of the simulations that are out there to see this is an issue and it's going to get even more of an issue as more of these satellite constellations are launched. And um, not to mention things like near-Earth asteroids, there was an impact recently that gone went almost a, completely unnoticed um, that could have been devastating if it had happened over a city. And we see this every few years where we've got these micrometeorite impacts. So that ties right in there with it. We're not always talking about human-made satellites. We're also talking about some of the natural things that hit our planet and just being aware and how to protect ourselves. I want to go back to something uh, that you mentioned earlier, the importance of people, you know, having awareness of, of what's going on outside of their circle um, and maybe even outside of their, their demographic. You've also talked about being really interested in the future of space policy and activity, which is why I think you probably wrote your book, Rise of the Space Age Millennials. Can you talk to me about what inspired you to write the book and what the book is about? Sure. Yeah. I started this book three years ago. I, I am an older millennial and I, I got tired of some of the representations of my generation. It was very negative and it didn't really reflect the millennials that I knew very well. And so I wanted to get a better picture of millennials specifically within the space industry. So I interviewed students and young professionals who work in the space industry or planning to work in the space industry and understand what their perspectives are, what their their motivations are, what their goals are within, you know, what they want to accomplish before they retire, um, just to understand where millennials were coming from. And I interviewed a hundred, so it's not like it's a huge sample size, but it's better than just me writing from my own experiences. And I, at the same time, was trying to probe under the surface some of those stereotypes that you hear that millennials are entitled or um, self-centered or, you know, some of these things that are very negative that I didn't want to ask outright, but I wanted to try to get an idea of do they hold true? And I wrote this book to sort of give a different perspective about the next generation that's coming up. So millennials, I think this year just passed the generation with the most employees in the U.S. sector. So millennials are now the largest demographic working in the United States. And um, it, it, we are the, the wave that's going to be controlling the body of um, you know, space, space policy and space industry and space science as we continue to age and gain more influence. And it's just interesting to see. It was actually a very optimistic book because I found that, again, probably sample size, but I found that almost everyone had just a very inspired look at what they were doing and why they were doing it and what they wanted to accomplish. And so I'm very pleased that this book will finally be released this spring um, to, to let people see you know, some truths about our generation, my generation, that they may not be aware of. Yeah. And I've, I, too, have spoken. I, too, consider myself an older millennial. It's just a phrase I will start to use more often now. (laughs) And I, too, have spoken to my colleagues and some of the people who have gone to graduate school or policy school after me, So, so people who are also on their way up. And by and large, it is a very positive community about the future. The viewpoint is that space activity is good for humanity. We all feel like we are part of a mission to advance humanity through through space exploration and development. And when you talk to people within that 
community within that sample size. It's very easy to reinforce that that feeling of we're, we're all part of doing something. And I think it's a good thing when we can also go outside of the community to also extend that message. Um, great things are happening in space for everybody. Um, here are ways that you can take part in them. Exactly. And I'm not saying that this kind of optimism is necessarily created by millennials. You can see it in the older generations as well, um, especially the ones that really um, helped form the environmental movement and how the Earthrise picture gave birth to a whole sector of um, people who wanted to protect Earth and make you know world a better place through space and other means. And so this, this didn't form because of millennials, but um, I feel that millennials um, have a different perspective on that because we are so interconnected, because this, the world is smaller now for us. And we just see things in a new light and we learn very quickly. We've had to adapt to technology very quickly. Um, and that gives us a unique perspective. Yeah. And I, I'm glad that you said that as well. It is, it's more of an extending of the baton. I don't want to say passing the baton because we do have multiple generations of people still working together in the space sector. So it, it's sort of people extending their hand to each other across generations. And, and the chain is, is not, the chain is not broken. And it's, it is a feeling that if people have been lucky enough to have a mentor in the space industry, it's been passed on to them. And then people extend it to each other uh, within the generation as well. Right. And now you're seeing a new generation, Generation Z, rise up. Now there are the college students and high school students that are the next generation. And it'd be interesting to see what inspires them and how they feel that they will contribute to the space sector. And that is actually a great transition, Laura. Uh, I want to move to our lightning round, our advice questions. Let's start with that Generation Z, those folks who are pre-graduate school, maybe high school or they're already in undergraduate. What advice would you give them if they want to get involved in space? So I feel like most students are discouraged because they uh, think it's not for them. <laughs> and that brings me back to the comment I made earlier where I talk about the non-STEM degrees. Um, you can absolutely go into space in any field that interests you. And so for some people that is science and, and I love science and I hope they know that even if they go into something like medicine and they wanna practice medicine and be a doctor or go into the research area of medicine and look at better um, you know, prosthetics or uh, drugs or whatever it may be, that they can still do that in space. And then, you know, things like art and, and STEAM is the new acronym, right? Science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. And art um, encompasses so many different areas, whether it's performing arts and um, you know, digital arts. And, and there's just so many different ways to communicate the human experience. And I know that is an area that um, a lot of people hand in hand go together with space. And which we even see the, um, the billionaire in Japan who bought the SpaceX uh, flight around the moon for himself and several artists to be named because he recognizes that um, it's not just scientists, engineers that make the best representatives of humanity. It's also the artists, the people who can sing and paint and draw and dance and, and all these different aspects of humanity that bring out our emotions and show um, you know, that we really have this unique perspective on our universe. And so the advice I would give back to your question is that don't be afraid to enter space. You don't have to be an astronaut, but you just certainly can be if you want to be. You don't have to be a scientist or engineer, but you absolutely can. That's not outside of your uh, your available 
options. You can do anything and you can still be in space. Don't let anyone tell you you can't. Yeah, no, that, that's a very important important thing to get across to people. But I did also want to say, you talk about artists being astronauts. We've also had astronauts become artists. Alan Bean's paintings from the Apollo missions, those, those are very affecting. I, I think I saw some of them on display at the National Air and Space Museum in D.C. So having an artist be able to participate in sharing that experience through paintings with people, having then already trained artists go up as well, I think will just proliferate that ability to share that experience with more people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Nicole Stott's another one that's an artist who actually painted on the uh, in space. I think she was on the International Space Station when she painted. And, and bringing it back to maybe the main audience of your podcast here, um, we had two politicians, U.S. politicians, who flew in space as well. And so, um, it, you know, I don't know if they had law backgrounds or not. I'd have to check. But you can also combine law and space, not only with space law, but also become an astronaut. Especially if you've got a billion dollars to spend on buying. Yeah, and and that that price point is going down, and that's one of the things that I think those of us in space development are so excited about is that we we're bringing we're bringing the barrier down, um, not just for individuals sponsoring themselves, but also for more people to be involved in companies and activities, which will eventually have their employees going to space. Absolutely. So then let's move on to students who are currently in graduate school. Usually this question is for uh, students in law school or students in policy school, but you yourself went to graduate school for astrophysics. Is that correct? That's right. And uh, would you describe that fairly as a, a very busy and heavy workload for you? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's um, uh, heavy on the mental toll, that's for sure. But I think what kept me going was recognizing that I could write my own future. Um, that was one of the, the main things that especially my master's degree pro- taught me as I transitioned from different universities and different advisors was that um, I had an open book in front of me. So I did not have to be on this straight tenure track and never really wanted to be. I never wanted to be a professor, a postdoc, a professor, you know, um, that's great for some people, but it was never for me. And I could write my own path. And only I knew what was the right thing for me. So I was getting a lot of advice from other people. But what helped me the most was just understanding other people's paths. So where did they get to where they are now? And you find that most people don't have this straight and narrow road. It's not just undergrad to grad school to, you know, it's not this straight path that they tell you about when you're a kid. It's very zigzagged. And some people pivot altogether somewhere in their adult life and they completely switch industries, which is most fascinating because they have a unique perspective on the next thing that they do that other people don't have. And so I think that when I was in grad school, the best thing for me was just recognizing the vast array of possibilities in front of me and then choosing things and trying it. And if I liked it, great. If I didn't like it, I'd try something else. And it was sort of a stepping stone to the next thing that fit me better and the next opportunity and, and trying to volunteer as much as I can to get involved in different projects. And um, some of them were literally volunteering and some of them actually ended up being paid opportunities. So you just never know. But the, the important thing was that I wasn't afraid to try. Yeah, and that and that's, I think, applicable, again, to anybody in any of the graduate school programs. They're all facing heavy workloads, be it science, policy, or law, but they are all in a position to really 
write their own, as you said, future moving forward. There are multiple paths and even multiple destinations to be involved in the space sector. Yeah, network as much as you can. I think the the best thing you can do is learn from the people ahead of you and find you know mentors, formal and informal, and role models. And there are so many people who I find that are just role models. You know, I myself, I, I'm still you know I'm in my mid 30s, so I still look ahead to the people who have successful careers who I want to emulate. And I you know don't need to follow their path, but I I get inspiration from them. And then what advice would you have for people who have already graduated? They're no longer in an academic program, but they, but they are interested in transitioning from the work they're currently doing to getting involved in the space sector. Do you have any advice for them? I actually do um, space career coaching on the side. That's one of the many things that I do. And so I get this question a lot where I have somebody in a different industry. And sometimes it's a related industry. Sometimes it's, you know, oil and gas or aviation or something that is related. Or sometimes it's something not related at all, like a teacher, Um, you know, something completely that out of left field, seemingly, that want to transition to space. And I tell them that it's never too late and that there's always transferable skills. And a lot of them have convinced themselves that they're not good enough, that they need to go back to school. And if there's nothing wrong with going back to school, they can go back to school and get a degree and and start um, afresh. Or they can convince themselves that they are worthy of whatever it is that they are trying to do. And I think that's the number one thing that I try to help them figure out is that you don't have to start at entry level. You didn't go down the wrong path. You actually have really valuable experiences and really valuable credentials that you can bring to the space sector and we need you. And I think that's a point that is not talked about enough, how much space needs the people who have different career paths and different experiences. And, you know, when we talk about diversity, we don't just talk about, you know, male and female, we should also think about the vast array of experiences that people bring to the table and geographic diversity and industry diversity and all the various ways that we can make this an industry with different perspectives so that um, one person might catch something or see something or have this brilliant idea and bring that to the table that's never been talked about or discussed before. So if you are listening and you're not currently working in space and you really want to, what's stopping you? And I think that's a great point that it's not just one discipline or one background that you can use to benefit the space community and get involved, uh, which is why I am so glad to have had you, Laura, on my podcast, even though you are not officially a lawyer or have any legal training in your background. I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak to your space law audience. And I know that um, law is an area that has been important for space for decades and I think will be even more important in the coming years. And then where can people go to find out more information about you, about Astrolytical, and about your book? Sure, yeah. So astrolytical.com is my website, and on there is a sign-up for the book, so you can get updates as to when it's going to be in pre-order and release very soon. And I'm also very active on Twitter. You can get me on LinkedIn, um, communicate with me, just reach out, you know, email, phone, whatever means. I'm, I'm always open to hearing from, from you and from new colleagues. And we will make sure and have a link to your website and your book on astroesquire.com. All right. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Astro Esquire podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website at astroesq.com and check out our Patreon page to subscribe for access to bonus content. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The Astro Esquire podcast is hosted and produced by Nathan Johnson. Our theme music was composed by Kevin Bloom. Thank you.